to talk about fathers for a moment or two as a way of introducing the message this morning. I want to put two pictures in your mind. The first one is what's called implosion. Implosion, which you've all seen the videos. I, I, I thought about putting a YouTube up, but you all, you've all seen them on TV or the news or somewhere where you, this, this, this big building, multiple floors, and they keep got the cameras on it, and boom, there's an explosion, and the whole thing just collapses. Just in a matter of seconds, it's gone. That's what's called an implosion. It's, it's sort of a misnomer because what they do is they set off explosions on the inside of the building at key places in the structure that supports the building. It doesn't take a, it doesn't take a huge explosion at the right place, uh, to basically set, uh, in, uh, in place a series of, you know, reactions, which is simply going to cause the building to fall, uh, because of gravity. But it all happens almost, almost instantaneously in a matter of seconds. Now, here, here's the other picture I want you to set along beside of it. It is the picture of a building being constructed. Think of a construction site. And they're putting up the steel. They're building a, a skyscraper, whatever it is, a huge building. Now, that process takes months and months and months, if not years, to complete. It can all be brought down in a second, but it takes a long time to construct. Much more planning, time, an effort is required to build a building. Well, even just just think of a, a residential uh, construction. Building a house takes well, multiple weeks, a couple months, maybe three. Now, with those two pictures in mind, here's what I want to say to you, fathers. We need to be very, very careful about how we deal with our children. Because it is so easy to somehow think that because we are disciplinarians, because we require that our children do this, do that, that that is the gist of fatherhood, that that is the crux of fatherhood. And it certainly is part of being a father. You've heard the old saying, well, I, so-and-so needed to be taken down a notch or two. That, that comes from way back. But the thing about it is, when a child needs to be taken down a notch or two, actually they are taken down a lot of notches very, very quickly. 
If our words are harsh, our criticism is sharp, our admonishment made without an equal part of love involved, we can tear down a child in so many ways so quickly. And I don't deny that sometimes that's necessary, but be prepared to counter that with a lot of hard work over a long period of time to reconstruct in the proper way. To encourage, to build up. If I personally could pick out one word, to describe a father in the best of ways, it would be encourager. It takes so much more encouragement in this day and age in particular than probably any of us ever experienced. Now, in the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians at verse 11, we see it here in earnest in regard to not just fathers, but to Christians in general. Paul says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Now, the word comfort, exact same word in the Greek that we find back in Verse 18 of the previous chapter, where it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It has to do with giving someone perspective in a kind, understanding way, instructing, and so on. But Paul says here in verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore, comfort each other. He's saying to the, uh, speaking to the broader Expanse of the church, not just to fathers and mothers and children, but to everyone. Therefore, comfort each other. And he adds something else here now in verse 11 that he didn't say in verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, and edify. And edify one another. Just as you are doing. The word edify is a word that comes from the building trade. It means to construct, to put together those things which are necessary for the building of a house, an edifice. We need both comfort and edification. Now, made that point in regard to fathers and thank God for fathers who have been and continue to be an encouragement. You see, your children are soon going to outgrow the necessity of you correcting them, but they will never ever outgrow the necessity of your encouragement. So if you have an encouraging father, praise God for it. And I know some of you are Without your fathers, they have passed on, but I remind you of the great comfort we saw last week in chapter 4. We will have a day of reunion. Let that be your comfort and strength today. And in the meantime, 
in your heart and mind, reflect on their encouragement in the past, and it'll help you today. Twice now, we have backed into the sermon. Both last week and now again this week. We went to the last verse in the passage we're going to consider, like we did last week in chapter 4, verse 13. Now this week in chapter 5, verse 11. Because this is the point. This is the purpose for what he is about to say in practical terms. Now last week, he dealt with this issue that they were concerned about other fellow Christians and family members that had died and went on and and they had been expecting after Paul had taught them about the rapture of the church they had been expecting it to come very soon and now time has passed and some have passed on and they weren't sure what to think about them and all the rest and and Paul gives us that very comforting passage about the rapture and the resurrection of those that have died prior and the translation the catching up the snatching up those that are still alive when the rapture comes. And so we will be reunited. We will recognize each other. There will be a, they, there will be a reunion, uh, not only with loved ones, but with our Lord uh, as well. Now we come in cha- to chapter 5, and he is still on the topic of prophecy. And... If we look at these 11 verses in total and we get down to the very end, the last one before he changes the subject again, we come back to the same point that he made in chapter 4. And so what we see here is that the prophetic future at large, not just the rapture, but the prophetic future, those things that come after the rapture, they too give us daily comfort daily encouragement. And I'm going to show you this in two ways this morning. In chapter 5, beginning at verse... Follow with me. Be prepared to take some notes. There'll be some things you might hear that uh, you just... You've heard it before, perhaps, but you just didn't quite click. Be ready to write some things down, some references, so on. I want to give you two reasons now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, why the prophetic future, all that awaits us, should be a continual source of our comfort or encouragement in today's world, in our present situation. And I don't, I just don't really remember any time in my lifetime where I've run across so many people that are so doggone discouraged with the way things are. Uh, and, and that includes many of us as Christians. It's hard to keep ourselves encouraged. So I think this will be helpful. Reason number one, why the prophetic future can be a daily encouragement. Number one, a time of justice is coming. That doesn't sound like a very encouraging statement. But I guarantee you it is if you think about it. A time of justice is coming. Verse 1, But concerning, Paul says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, 
Even though Paul didn't spend a whole lot of time in Thessalonica, he gave them a lot of deep scriptural instruction. And when he says here, the times and the seasons, it really references, first of all, chronological time, when he says times, calendar time, the day-by-day passing of time. The word seasons here in Greek tends to indicate events. It's time looked at not so much as the calendar unfolding or the clock ticking off the minutes, but the events that are going to come one after another in succession. Now, looking forward prophetically, those are two things that we don't need to worry about. Why? Well, because the time, we don't know. He's not going to give us the time. He's not going to give us the day. We discussed this last week. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time, but we don't know when. They knew that. He had, he had told them that. He had even written it already in this, this letter again. But when he says the seasons, he's including a lot of things that he had laid out for them prophetically that they knew was going to happen. And they knew not the time that would start to happen, but they knew the succession of events that would unfold when it happened. And see, that's what we have in the book of Revelation. We don't know when it's all going to happen, but we got it all laid out. We have the seven seals. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, the seven bowls of wrath. That's the chronology you follow all the way through the book of Revelation. If you've been following Wednesday night study, you know that pretty well by now. Now, the day of the Lord comes unexpectedly because a thief doesn't announce his arrival. He doesn't call you up on the phone and say, by the way, I'm going to rob your house tonight at 2 a.m. That would be kind of stupid. Thief comes unexpectedly. Thief comes unannounced. Uh, he comes to do harm. And so he comes uh, at a time you would uh, not expect. Now, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 43, Jesus uses this same terminology that Paul builds on here. In Matthew 24, 43, he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, not allowed his house to be broken into. Now that's said in reference to the rapture in chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. This here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is said in reference to events that are going to overtake the unsaved after the church is removed and the rapture is over, and the tribulation period is unfolding event by event by event. You say, well, they ought to expect that. They ought to know. No, they don't. They're in the dark. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, they're not going to pay any attention to the Scripture. They're not going to pay any attention to the prophecy. Uh, it's still going to overtake them. They're going to think that all is well in this world, and that the Antichrist is God, and uh, they're following him, and they're on the right side until it all proves differently. So, what we see that's going to happen in the book of Revelation, we see it in earnest, but what it's referred to here is that there's a day of justice coming. 
Now, look at it again, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. You already instructed them. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And when they say, the they, when you see the word they, he's talking about unbelievers after the rapture. When he says you in this passage, he's talking to the Thessalonians on this side of the rapture where we are. But when he says in verse 3, when they, when the unsaved people that are left after the rapture has taken place, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So the period of time he is talking about, he calls the day of the Lord. Now, The day of the Lord describes a period of time in the future that God will pour out his wrath, his judgment upon unbelievers. And that will take place during the seven-year tribulation period, primarily take place in the latter part of that seven-year period. For example, Joel chapter 1 and verse 15 in the Old Testament Joel says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now let's look at Joel chapter 2, verse 11. For the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible who can endure it. How about Joel chapter 2, verse 31? The sun shall be turned into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, those are just some references in the book of Joel. You can find other references very similar to this in other Old Testament prophetic passages. But whenever, whenever the day of the Lord is mentioned... In the Old Testament prophecies, it always is talking about a day of judgment, a day in which God Almighty will bring about justice upon the unbelieving and the evil people in this world and beyond. And you can see it very plainly in those references in Joel. Well, let's just take a look at one in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, says Peter, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Now that event that he just described there will take place at the end of the millennium. So the day of the Lord stretches obviously from somewhere in the tribulation, all the way through the final judgments that are beyond the millennium. Now, the day of the Lord is all laid out in Scripture in the book of Revelation, although we don't know when it will begin. And it will catch the world off guard. Just as it mentioned there, the the woman in labor, uh, the pregnant woman, 
it's a great illustration. A woman who's expecting a child knows a child's on the way. She doesn't know the day her labor begins. There may be people, unsaved people in the world at that time that as they experience the wrath of God are, are thinking, well, maybe we're in for it. Maybe, uh, maybe something bad is going to happen to us. They might even say, it's, it seems to be on the way because we're losing this battle. But they don't know when it's all going to begin in earnest. What are some signs of the day of the Lord that will take place during the tribulation period? I'm, there are several, but I want to mention a couple. Number one is a worldwide apostasy. Second Thessalonians, you don't have far to go. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses three and four. We're going to begin at verse three. Let no one deceive you, said Paul. You see, Paul's still dealing with the same topic in 2 Thessalonians. We haven't gotten there yet for sure. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. What's he mean, the falling away? The apostasy. He's referring to people turning away from God. what this world's doing today we are in the early stages no doubt of the end time prophecy of the apostasy where those even those who claim to worship god and claim to serve christ turn away from him some of the scriptures we read earlier just that that whole description of how people are going to be in that day it's just today as Travis was reading that, didn't you just look at that and say, that's, that's today. That's the way people are. Not everybody, but many. There's going to be a great turning away from God. The Antichrist is going to proclaim himself to be God. Verse 4, who, speaking of the Antichrist, called the son of perdition at the end of verse 3, it says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He will be the ultimate false prophet, the ultimate false God. And people will turn away from the true God, not necessarily uh, those who espouse Christ and profess Christ, but even from other religions are going to flock to him. The true believers are going to be removed. Many will be saved after that. They're going to be, probably many of them suffer and be martyred. Uh, but there's going to be plenty of professing Christians, churchgoers, uh, religious people that were never born again. They're going to flip and are going to bow down to the Antichrist. So there's this great apostasy that's going to take place primarily in the tribulation period, but it's happening now. It's starting to happen. Now, sign number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. And uh, I, I really already read that to you, but it's right here again in this same scripture. Let's read verses three and four again of Second Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, the Antichrist, the man of sin is revealed, 
the son of perdition who opposes and all that and sets himself up as God, verse 4. There's always been a lot of speculation in my lifetime over, will, will this person on the world scene actually turn out to be the Antichrist? You can hear those, those discussions and, and people are talking about it even today. Now listen, he won't be revealed until very late in the, in the program. And we're going to be going before he's revealed probably. I mean, he might be here. We might, might even someone speculate that could be the Antichrist, but he'll be revealed in earnest when he sets himself up and says, worship me. And he does so with, uh, uh, you know, all of his fake miracles and the rest. Well, those are the things that will precede Entry into the day of the Lord. For when that happens, and the Antichrist will set himself up as God in the Jewish temple at the midpoint of the tribulation. It is only after that then that God brings about the day of the Lord. Notice it says again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, When they say peace and safety, the Antichrist is going to be a peacemaker at first. When it comes on the scene, people are going to think he's wonderful, solving all a man's problems. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is when the sudden destruction falls. Now, I think I have a timeline here. There he is. Got a color coded here, although I, the colors aren't really very vibrant up here. The Old Testament time, the New Testament time, the rapture of the church. This little expansive time right in here is the tribulation period. The coming of the Lord to the earth to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. Right in here, toward the latter part of the tribulation period, is the day of the Lord ends. Now, I may have had this verse mislocated. Well, I had it located where I wanted it, but I changed the location on the guys in the booth back there, so they may not be able to throw it up uh, if I even did indicate it to them. But it's in the book of Revelation, and it's in chapter 7. Oh, boy. Actually, it's in uh, chapter 10. Well, not even sure that's the right one. But anyway, there's, there's a point in here uh, where he announces the three woes. I think it might be chapter 8. It is chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Revelation, verse 13. This comes in conjunction with the fifth trumpet. So trumpets five, six, and seven are called woes, the three woes. But the seventh trumpet contains all the bowls of wrath. Look at it in verse 13 of chapter 8, the book of Revelation. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. 
So there's something that happens with trumpet number five that changes the complexion, the intensity, and the reasoning for what's happening in the book of Revelation. Now, that being said then, what we have, if I could illustrate it for you, is this. The Antichrist comes on the scene, he takes control, people think he's great, eventually he turns on everybody, requires they worship him, he controls all commerce and spending, by the way. Um, just found out yesterday that my iPhone, the last time it was updated, now has a tracking device on it that will, if it's turned on, be able to tell you if you were close by anybody else that had a cell phone that had COVID-19. I just turned mine off. I don't, you know, I don't like people snooping on me. But if, if you're in a right, right situation and you think you might, might be exposed, then you might want to know where, so it would have some functionality. All I'm saying is, when we move into the tribulation period, the technology is all there for the Antichrist to track everybody one way or another, whether it be an inserted chip in, under our skin or RFID or uh, through our phones or whatever, they'll be able to control. There won't be cash. You won't be carrying around greenbacks. No cash. Everything will be electronically uh, handled, all transactions. Everything will be traced. You can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. You've heard it all before. Now, after all that has transpired and God says enough is enough, he just opens the windows of heaven and pours out the wrath. And what's going to transpire here is like your, your hometown football team who's two touchdowns down with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And it looks really bleak for God's team. <laughs> but God's got a quarterback that's yeah, unmatched. You know what I mean? In the last two minutes, he's going to pow, pow, pow. This is the game over. That's what we're talking about here. That's the day of the Lord. So it will be a day of justice. In fact, when you read it here again in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, at verse 4 it says, And they shall not escape. No one. Listen. There is no final and complete justice in this world. There's a lot of people today that's crying out and they're saying, we want justice. We want justice for this. We want justice for this crime. We want justice for this situation. We want justice for this group of people. And I'm not necessarily saying that mankind shouldn't be concerned with justice. We all should be. What is just and right, we should all be concerned about. But we live in an imperfect world governed by sinful men and fallen creatures and justice is hard to come by. In fact, none of us can live life without having suffered some injustice somewhere, somehow, probably multiple times. Now listen to this. This came right out of President's speech this week about... Police reforms. Get this. 47% of all murders in Chicago last year were never solved. 47% of all the murders in Chicago in 2019, they never made an arrest. You think that's bad? Let's, let's talk about Baltimore, Maryland. 68% 
of all murders in Baltimore in 2019 unsolved, no arrest. That's not justice. Two-thirds of the people who committed murder in Baltimore walked away scot-free? 50% of those in Chicago did? That's not justice. This world doesn't have justice in its completeness and in its perfection. But let me tell you something. In God's plan, in God's time, no sin will go unpunished. None. Hey, not even your sins and mine. They're under the blood of Christ. Hopefully they are if we're believers in Jesus Christ. But they were punished. Jesus Jesus had received that punishment. He had has received it for us. Even the, even the believer's sins have been punished. But the unbelievers who have never placed their faith in Jesus, they may walk away scot-free in this world from this, that, and the other. But there's a day coming when that's all going to be rectified. You say, how's that comfort? People are going to suffer. Listen, David cried out for evildoers to receive what was due in the book of Psalms multiple times. And I'm telling you, and I'm kind of, if this is a sin, God help me, but I don't believe it is. But when I hear of some evil person murdering a child, I literally pray that, they, that he will be apprehended and punished for that horrendous sin. Because I, have a, I think I have a sense of justice put in me by the Spirit of God. That's not vengeance. Vengeance is when I get involved and I want to, I want to try to straighten it out. Justice is when I leave it to God. God, if I'm wrong, if, you, if, you know, if this person isn't, fine. If he's guilty, then we have a sense of justice. And God is a just God and it's going to come and it's going to fall in the last days. And it's going to be, by the way, it's going to cover What begins in the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon at the end of of the tribulation, the final rebellion at the end of the millennium, and the great white throne judgment, all of that falls under the day of the Lord. It covers it all, all of that. Yeah, there's a lot of good times in there. Uh, The millennium is in there. But that period of time, that expanse of time, the day of the Lord, as it's called, that will be when God's justice comes to bear. Now, here's the way that it is a comfort. And this is more important. Now I'm going to have to go back because I've got this, those pictures in the wrong place. So far, we've talked about a time of justice is coming. But here's the good part for us. Here's the comfort for us. We will not experience it. Why? We've already been taken away before the... The day of the Lord comes. We're in heaven with the Lord. By the way, all of our sins Jesus took upon himself. We are not going to be punished. Fathers, remember this, and I know we all say, well, I had to punish my child. No, don't, you don't punish your child. Correct your child. Punishment. You don't want to think in those terms. Yeah, we have to correct. We have to discipline. But listen, Jesus 
received the punishment for our sins. He died in our place. If there's any listening to the sound of my voice, be it right now, currently, or may it be tomorrow or next week or whenever, as you listen on sermon audio or Facebook or whatever, listen, think about it. You're not going to escape. There is no escape. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He loved you so much, He already took your punishment. How much better could we have it? We will not experience it. Now look at it closely with me again. Verse 6. Verse 5, actually. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now that's just a, that's just a way of saying if you're saved, you've got spiritual insight and understanding. And your life has been changed. But those that are in the dark, they haven't come to Christ. They haven't been born again. Therefore, he says in verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. There's our stance today. Watch and be sober. Now, I wish I could say that we could do X, Y, and Z and change it all. But it's in God's hands. We can't do but what little we can do on the local level, maybe. But we have got to get our minds focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back, that we are going to be spared from his wrath. Justice will come. None that receive it will escape. God is going to balance all the books. He's going to write all the accounts. And we better make sure we're on the right side of the ledger. And if we are, then all we can do now is watch and be sober-minded. Don't be caught up in it. Don't be fooled. Don't be led down the wrong paths. Maintain our Christian worldview, not society's momentary view. Why? Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. He's just saying the people that are unsaved, they're oblivious. They're just having a good time and they're, they're checked out of reality. That's why, that's why when the judgment falls, it's going to catch them as a thief in the night. Verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. He's talking about our thinking. Our sober-mindedness, our understanding of truth. Verse 9, for God, and here's the important point, for God did not appoint us to wrath. The day of the Lord is wrath. We're not appointed to that. It's not our destiny. We'll be spared from that. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, and whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. There's the comfort of it all. Again, we will be with him. And now we're down to verse 11 where we started. When we backed into it all. 
Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. I love how Paul does this because as he is talking to them about edifying each other, he's edifying them. <laughs> they, they were doing pretty good in Thessalonica. He said, you know, I want you to be comforting one another and I want you to be building each other up and edifying one just, just like you're doing now. Now, when, when, when dad puts his arm around you and pats you on the back, that's, that's the greatest motivation in the world. And thank God for dads and mothers too who, who encourage their children in the right. And we might have to say, be careful about this and be watching about this and, 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 and be sober and don't get caught off guard and don't do this and sin, but you're doing great. Praise God. All of us are going to fail. All of us are going to fall short from time to time. And, and we're going to have to receive some discipline. But uh, remember, all that effort it takes to build up, to edify. Without that, we're going to lose the, the battle. And so here's the conclusion of the matter. Determine that you're going to be in the construction business. Determine that you're going to be in the construction business, in your own home, in the church, at work, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, be in the construction business, edifying and building up, encouraging. And don't, don't, don't get bogged down and think that somehow you're in the demolition business. That's not our, that's not our calling. That's not our purpose. Thank God for those fathers and others who have and do encourage us, brothers and sisters. But let's all determine to put away the harsh criticism, the harsh words, the inability to understand things from another person's point of view. The coldness of heart that we sometimes exude and portray without even thinking about it. Put it all away. Make sure you're in the construction business.